Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And a warm welcome to all our first movers around the world. Fantastic to have you with us this Tuesday. No shortage of things to discuss, including the ongoing fuss over trust. Her signature tax plan now under the bus. Her future as UK leader, less easy to suss. However, Liz Trust did apologise on TV for what she called going too far too fast on her UN-financed stimulus programme and the ensuing market instability. She vowed to fight on. In London skyscraper terms, the growth plan is in shards. Shard. And a conservative politics, well, it's in a pickle. And it's called the Gherkin, of course. But, hey, close enough. What we're looking at, although in terms of asset prices, is stability. The UK pound slightly softer today. But context, of course, is everything. Sterling has rebounded some 3% over the past week as the budget crisis eases. The bigger point, perhaps, the UK finance minister's sudden fiscal prudence on Monday helped broader market sentiment, contributing to a global stock rally. US tech stocks saw their biggest gains since July. U.S. stocks looking to add further to those gains, of course, on Tuesday as well. And Europe is higher despite fresh recession fears. More on that shortly. But as you can see in front of you, green well and truly across the screen there and pre-market in the United States. Earnings optimism is also giving us a helping hand. Goldman Sachs rising some 3% pre-market after its Results beat expectations, driven by blowout results from its bond trading desk, offsetting investment banking weakness. That's a broad and recurring theme across the entire sector. Goldman CEO David Solomon hailing the results while also voicing caution over the risk of future recession. At the core of that, of course, the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. And that is where we begin today's show, with 30% of Ukraine's power stations destroyed in just eight days. President Zelensky says there are massive blackouts across the nation. In Kyiv, three people lost their lives in a missile attack on an energy supply facility. That according to the prosecutor's office. Nick Robertson is in the capital for us. Nick, just give us a sense of, of what it's like being there in terms of seeing this destruction to, to infrastructure across the country and obviously the impact on availability of, of both water and energy supplies. Yeah, the capital, Kyiv, is suffering in some parts of the city here, particularly on the left bank, which is what you can see behind me, uh, shortages of electricity. Uh, and that means there's uh, the water is not pumping properly in, in many places. So there's low water pressure or some people don't have water at all. And that's in the capital. That's, that's something new in this war for people here. Uh, it's happening elsewhere. Dnipro, the power station, was hit there uh, uh, further to the west of, uh, of Kyiv. Kiev, a power station was hit there as well. Kharkiv in the in the east, uh, uh, an industrial facility was targeted there. So the, Russia really is doubling down, it seems, on the energy infrastructure. Now, the energy companies here say that they are being able to repair the damage, pretty much get uh, facilities turned around in the space of about uh, in the space of about 48 hours. So they are 
repairing and replacing, but of course their inventory of, of replacement items will be, will be limited. Russia will have an understanding of, of these power plants because the power plants that are used in Ukraine are built very much on the same uh, sort of Soviet design as they were in Russia. So targeting the power plants means that Russia knows the weak spots, if you will, to go to where it can, where it can target the equipment that's going to be harder to replace. So it is an uphill battle for the Ukrainians to keep the country supplied with electricity. But it, they say it's what they're committed to doing. It's actually incredible if they can get things up and running again as best they can, even within the short space of, of 48 hours. I know the city's mayor in, in Kiev was suggesting that people ration if they have access to supplies and, the, and they do that. Nick, in response to the kamikaze drones that we believe have been used to carry out these attacks, the belief now is that the US Department of um, Defense is trying to speed up delivery of two I think, advanced surface-to-air missile systems to, to Ukraine. Do we have any more information on that and on timing? Um, the, the timings aren't clear, uh, and it's not clear that uh, this advanced system will be the right system or the best system to target the drones. The drones fly uh, relatively slowly uh, and, uh, and, uh, and are easier to target than cruise missiles that Russia also uses. And part of what Russia is doing, uh, and it's been seen over the past sort of uptick over the past eight days or so of targeting these energy facilities, is some days use swarms of drones. Yesterday over Kyiv, 28 drones, 24 of them shot down at least. Um, uh, today, the power station in, in Kyiv targeted by missiles. So, um, Russia sort of mixes it up between the drones and the missiles to try to get through to the targets. And they're certainly learning what drones work for them and what drones are less successful and, and are fine-tuning this sort of new phase in their war of attrition against, the against Ukraine's electrical generating uh, capability and capacity. Mm. Nick Roberts, great to have you with us. Uh, thank you so much for that. And powerful explosions caused damage to the two Nord Stream gas pipelines. That's according to Copenhagen police, who've now examined the damage in the Danish part of the Baltic Sea. Swedish and Danish authorities are investigating four holes in all. This underwater video was released by Swedish media, claiming to show some pretty extensive damage to Nord Stream 1, as you can see there. Hmm. OK, let's move on. Another recession warning in the United States, this time from credit rating agency Fitch. The firm says the U.S. economy will be pushed into a 1990-style recession next spring, thanks to stubbornly high inflation and the Federal Reserve's aggressive interest rate hikes. It's just the latest in a number of warnings from J.P. Morgan Chase CEO Jamie Dimon to the International Monetary Fund, to name two. Matt Egan joins us now on this story. Matt, great to have you with us. Um, just remind us, what are we talking about when we say a 1990-style recession, and particularly given we're only, what, a year out from the last recession, the pandemic-induced recession? It's uncomfortable in any form, but, but 1990 specifically, what are we looking at? Well, Julia, we know that not all recessions are created equally, right? We have some of them have been meltdowns like the 2020 recession and the 2008 Great Recession. But Fitch is calling for something a lot more mild, much like the recession that began in the summer of 1990. Now, one way to measure just how um, intense a recession is, is to look at how much the unemployment rate goes up. And, you know, if you look, 
We saw this massive spike in the unemployment rate uh, that began in the spring of 2020. Uh, The rate went up by something like 11 percentage points. Also, another really big and prolonged increase during the Great Recession. But in the 1990 recession, it was a much smaller increase. Now, this is not uh, to uh, sort of minimize uh, the pain here. Any job loss, of course, is painful. But, you know, there are some reasons uh, to be hopeful that maybe this recession might not be uh, quite as destructive. Fitch laid out a couple of reasons for this optimism. One, uh, the economy is sort of entering this period from a position of strength. I mean, the jobs market is historically strong. Uh, Consumer balance sheets are pretty sturdy. People don't have quite as much debt as they have in the past. The housing market uh, does not appear to be massively oversupplied like it was in the mid-2000s. And also the banking system, thankfully, because of regulation, is a lot stronger than it has been in the past. Mm. Matt Egan, great to have you with us. Uh, Thank you so much for that. Now, a slowing economy may also be worrying policymakers in Beijing. China is delaying the release of key economic data, including its third quarter GDP statistics. This comes, of course, as President Xi Jinping set to claim an unprecedented third term as the country's leader this week. Selena Wang joins us now. Selena, we were talking yesterday about how optimistic and powerful that two-hour opening speech was from President Xi. Uh, We would and were expecting the GDP statistics to be eye-watering. Why on earth would you release them in the middle of that, having just announced that opening speech? So perhaps no surprise here. What do you think? Yeah, exactly. I mean, this was a completely abrupt, unexpected delay in that release of GDP numbers. And some experts are saying, look, they're holding this off because the data probably isn't so pretty. And they don't want anything overshadowing this major Communist Party Congress when she is expected to assume this unprecedented third term. But the reality is, is that China is dealing with a sharp economic slowdown from these constant COVID lockdowns, a property sector in crisis, high unemployment rate. But Beijing wants the focus to be completely on Xi and the successes, not all of the challenges the economy is facing. In the second quarter, we saw China's economy barely eke out growth at about 0.4% growth. And economists expect that in this third quarter, we're going to continue to see weakness. China is expected to fall far short of its own full year economic growth target of 5.5%. So the thinking here is why not delay those numbers so we don't put more attention on all of these harsh economic realities. Migrant workers like Mr. Hu move from China's villages to Beijing in search for better job prospects. On a lucky day, he can make the equivalent of a few dozen U.S. dollars from construction work. Anything left over, he sends home to his kids in the village. He says the pandemic has made it harder to find work, and China's economy is in bad shape because of all the COVID restrictions. The world's growth engine is sputtering. After decades of unstoppable growth, China's economy is cracking. Constant COVID lockdowns, wrecking businesses and lives. He shows us his rental home in Beijing, just four square meters. It's really small, he says. Since Chinese leader Xi Jinping took power in 2012, he's pledged to reduce income inequality. But workers like Hu aren't seeing the benefits. He says... I don't think it's a good idea for him to continue to serve. I think there are a lot of people in China who have lost confidence 
in the pragmatic judgment of their leader. It could become a big challenge to Xi Jinping. Unemployment is skyrocketing, not just because of the pandemic. China's once vibrant private sector suffocating under Xi Jinping's crackdown to bring companies under tighter Communist Party control. Beijing insists the moves protect consumers and reduce economic inequality. But instead, mass layoffs are sending youth unemployment to a record high of nearly 20 percent. Protests also erupted this summer in central China. Thousands of depositors lost access to their savings at several banks in the region. As police violently quashed the protesters, Beijing arrested hundreds of suspects allegedly involved in the scandal and promised that depositors would start to get their money back. But many still have not. This is my family's hard-earned money over the last 20 years. He says our lives depend on it. How has this whole experience changed your perception of your country, of China's leaders? I'm like an ant that they can trample on. I have no hope, he says. Another crisis is unfolding in China's all-important property sector. Giant developers have defaulted. Home sales are dropping. Home buyers across the country are boycotting mortgage payments on unfinished homes, fearful that their properties will never get built. These protesters chant, evil developer, give back my property. So the Chinese property market is probably the world's greatest economic asset, single economic asset. If it does collapse, then we have a full-blown recession, maybe even depression. Xi Jinping is preparing to be ruler for life, claiming that his brand of authoritarianism will realize the China dream of strength and prosperity. But for people like Hu, all he wants is to make ends meet. And even that is a dream out of reach. And Julia, we're seeing that a lot of Xi's own policies are actually making China's economic problems worse. But from that two-hour opening speech at the party congress, Xi made it clear that he's not going to change the direction he's taking the economy in. In fact, in the third term, expect to see even more Communist Party control over the economy, over the private sector. The sweeping regulations that he has put on the private sector, especially for technology companies, it sparked a lot of fears about the future of growth, entrepreneurship, and innovation inside China. And on zero COVID, which has absolutely upended the economy, well, she hailed it as a success. So that is expected to say. Critics here see a leader who is putting now politics and ideology over the growth of the economy. So instead of an era of reform and opening in China, they see an era of reform, but closing. Julia? Hmm. A great success, but we're not backing it up with the data. Hmm. Selena Wang. Thank you so much for that. Okay, straight ahead. Recession risks and inflation situations all over the world, but some nations like India are proving surprisingly resilient. Coming up, the chairman of India's largest private bank discusses digitization and future growth. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. As the global recession warnings around the world pile up, there remain a number of economic bright spots, and India appears to be one of them. Dinesh Kara, chairman of the State Bank of India, the country's largest private bank, says India is unlikely to be hit as hard as by a global recession as other nations. 
The reason? Cara says inflation there is under control and the economy is expected to grow 6.8% in the 2022-23 financial year. Still, Cara says the government is focused on dealing with risks like inflation and its effects on the economy. And he joins us now. Chairman Cara, fantastic to have you on the show. I actually know you've just been attending many meetings at the IMF uh, and obviously in, in Washington, D.C. Can I ask just to begin what your strongest takeaway is of the, the broader situation in the global economy and what your message about India's relative resilience was to those, uh, Thank to you those very attendees? Much. Thank you very much for having me on your show. And uh, yeah, when you talked about the IMF World Bank meetings and the message, I would, the way I read the situation is that there are genuine concerns across many countries in the globe about the impact of uh, the inflation and also the central banks are expected to increase the interest rates going forward. This is what uh, I gather from uh, while speaking to many of the bankers who participated in the IMF World Bank meeting. In that context, I would say that as far as India is concerned, it is it is certainly a bright spot. We have already seen a growth of about 6.8%. The major factor which could be a matter of concern for us is essentially relating to inflation, which to my mind is more transitory in nature. Uh, essentially, we have imported inflation on account of the crude prices. They have already started softening. And also the other important factor which is impacting the inflation apparently is essentially on account of some bit of a food inflation. And to my mind, the kind of steps which have been taken by government of India in terms of ensuring the adequate availability of food grains in the economy, that will also help in easing out the food inflation. So I think both on the, as far as the inflation is concerned in India, it is essentially attributed to the supply side inflation, and it is not as much to uh, attribute to the demand side inflation. So on the supply side, capacity utilization being just about 71%, crude price inflation likely to get under control, food inflation also likely to be under check. So I think all said and done, this augurs very well for an economy like India, and we are quite hopeful that we will have a decent growth around 7% in the current financial year, and even next year also, on with the increased base, the effect would be that it would be some around 6 to 6.5% kind of a growth we expect to be there in the next financial year. It's so fascinating, isn't it? That mix between your uh, import balance, the domestic demand capacity within your own country as well, and, and being able to offset that to some degree. You obviously have a central bank as well that, that continues to raise interest rates in the same way that, that the Federal Reserve does in the United States. We were having a conversation on the show, show yesterday about the danger of the rising US dollar and the pressure that it's putting, even just in currency terms, on nations around the world. How worried are you by the global liquidity tightening effect of the of the strength of the US dollar, which is beyond the relative interest rates as we look around the world. How much of a concern is that for you, whether it's India's economy or just in terms of, of, of credit and liquidity around the world? Well, of course, uh, the US has increased the interest rates by about 300 basis points, while in India, the central bank of the country, the Bank of India, has increased the interest rates by about 190 basis point. So as I mentioned that uh, the interest rate increase is, is essentially to uh, 
there are two different focus when it comes to us the focus is essentially to contain the the demand whereas when it comes to india it is essentially to maintain the parity between indian rupee and the us dollar so i think on that particular account the way i look at it is that uh, when it comes to a country like india uh, we have certain uh, challenges in terms of imbalance on account of crude oil import which we have about 85% of our domestic oil consumption is imported consumption but uh, therein also with the softening of the crude prices the stress on the import will actually come down and uh, but yes of course exports also the the global recessionary conditions will also have an impact on our exports but overall i expect that uh, with the, the with the kind of recession which is expected the import will 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 probably come down and uh, uh, i mean cost of import will come down and also we will be in a position to strike a reasonable balance uh, i think with the demand being very very robust in the country we will have a situation where the fdi and the foreign portfolio investment will once again uh, look at india as a promising opportunity and they will all be moving towards india we already have got the distinction of having for 104 unicorns in the country mm. so i think that is something which will go a long way in terms of attracting capital from across the globe because they are in a position to offer solutions to many of the corporates across the across the globe so i think overall uh, the foreign institutional foreign portfolio investment and foreign direct investment will come into the country and also our import will will also be softened so eventually the the pressure which you are seeing on the currency as of now it will ease out and uh, will have a stability in the rupee dollar parity too that's how i read the situation yeah it's fascinating um what you just said about the unicorns and and the kind of environment that's being created one that allows that foreign direct investment to flow but also allows particularly firms that we've had on this show a lot from from India like in the fintech space for them to flourish and grow at an accelerated rate as well it's um it's quite fascinating um let's tie this all together though on what it means for your business in terms of of credit growth ensuring perhaps that deposit growth also catches up or at least matches at that at some point in the near future and i know for you as a bank you're also in a very swift process of digitizing much of the the lending that you do as well it talked to me about about this and about sort of how you're viewing credit growth going forward but also that sort of shift to facilitate consumer relationships and allow them to do much of this online how how are you thinking about that dinesh thank you uh, this is a very interesting question and i would also like to mention here is that uh, when it comes to credit growth we are expecting to witness even much stronger credit growth mm. going forward because one of course on account of the improved capacity utilization and second of course there is a very clear focus in the indian economy in terms of attracting investments into big tech already apple has uh, identified india to be part of its global sourcing locations and uh, india as an economy would be producing for uh, the apple and also various other big tech entities as well we have uh, already foxconn has shown interest we are having a huge opportunity for uh, manufacturing of solar uh, solar panels we also got uh, we have seen that when it comes to the solar cells and uh, these kind of uh, big tech opportunities there is going to be a huge opportunity indian government is also investing into the performance link incentive for encouraging manufacturing and similarly infrastructure is, a, is another 
major growth area for the economy having said that the real economy has got all these growth potentials and all these growth potential will also open up many opportunities for us in terms of the credit growth in the economy yeah when it comes to deposit of course uh, we have to ensure that uh, we should remain relevant for our depositors also and uh, of in the recent past we have already started seeing that the deposit rates have also started moving up though when it comes to the loan rates it has moved up faster but deposit rates have also started moving up the need is for having uh, incremental savings which should be on a higher side i think with the increased per capita income in the economy when the savings also will go up which will also augment the resources lendable resources for the banking system mm. just the beginning of our conversation come back and talk to us soon because as always i have uh, lots of questions particularly about what the really what the next 20 to 30 years looks like uh, in india as well um we shall reconvene dinesh great to chat to you thank you so much for joining us uh, dinesh kumar kara the chairman of the state bank of india sir thank you once again thank you very much thank you okay coming up here on first move i'm sorry uh for those mistakes but i fixed mistakes apologies from the british prime minister what's next though for her and the country's economy up next Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks looking good as golden in early trading days. As good as gold, you see. Sometimes I just need to wake up a little bit more in the morning. The major average is building on Monday's strong gains, boosted by solid results from financial giant Goldman Sachs. Goldman CEO David Solomon warning, however, today that there remains a good chance the U.S. will fall into recession. But banks have said in their third quarter earnings reports that the U.S. consumer remains in pretty good shape. Consumer products giant Johnson & Johnson reporting today that all its business segments topped forecasts, an interesting indicator. Pepsi also reporting strong results and raised its sales and profit forecasts last week. Now, closely watched earnings are on tap from two big corporate laggards to Netflix reports after the closing bell today. Its shares down some 60% year to date. Tesla also out tomorrow. Little Musk momentum this year. Its shares have fallen more than 35% since January a lot of that of course tied to Twitter and uh, the shenanigans with that too okay to the UK now prime minister liz truss apologizing for her controversial fiscal policy pronouncements shortly after her new finance minister or chancellor rolled out and rolled back most of that plan now i recognize we have made mistakes i'm sorry uh, for those mistakes but i fixed mistakes i've appointed a new chancellor uh we have restored economic stability and fiscal discipline and what i now want to do is go on and deliver for the public and scott mcclain joins us now scott the question is can she do this is a re- reshuffle of the cabinet likely what's being talked about in the uk Yeah, just when you thought all of the drama from Downing Street, Julia, was behind us, at least until the next general election, well, it is definitely back. Liz Truss, it appears, is on very thin ice with her colleagues. And it seems like over the past few days, few weeks, maybe she's been sort of testing the waters to see what exactly it would take to regain the trust of her colleagues and also, perhaps more importantly, the market. So first, she went back on her promise to ax the very top tax rate that would only affect the very highest earners in this country. And then she ended up firing her chancellor, her very good friend Kwasi Kwarteng. But that, it seems, still wasn't good enough. So now her new chancellor, Jeremy Hunt, who I should mention is from the opposite 
end of the party than her, the more moderate end of the Conservative Party, and actually supported her opponent in the leadership contest. He yesterday stood up in the House of Commons and in just the space of a few minutes managed to get rid of almost everything that was announced in that now infamous mini budget that Truss had announced. And so now they have scrapped the planned basic income tax cut of 1%, the planned cut to dividends tax, the planned income tax cut for the highest earners, the plan to cancel the corporate tax hike. All of this amounts to an estimated savings of around $36 million that the government never actually had accounted for in the first place, which is why this was so detrimental to the actual markets. Now, some smaller uh, items in that mini-budget managed to survive the call, but even the signature promise of that, which was the energy price guarantee to cap the cost of energy with the government taking on the remainder of the cost to essentially subsidize prices for people, even that is only going to survive in its current form until the spring, in which case it'll be replaced by something else, but something likely very much scaled down from what we've seen so far. The markets seem to like this. Uh, The FTSE got a bounce. The pound got a bounce against the dollar as well. But now we're sort of left in this awkward scenario, Julia, and that's that what do you do with Liz Truss? Because here is a prime minister who the main things that she campaigned on when it comes to uh, her economic platform have been done away with. They haven't worked. At least they haven't worked at this time. And so she's tried to sort of explain this away by saying, look, I went too far too fast. I still believe in, you know, fundamentally tax cuts, smaller government, things like that. But just now wasn't exactly the right time. But that was precisely the case that her opponent, Rishi Sunak, was making in the leadership contest. And so that is why uh, her leadership has been described in the British press by some as an empty vessel, by others as rudderless. And so now potentially she could be facing this leadership challenge. Some backbench MPs, a very small number of them, have already publicly called on her to resign. The polls are showing that the opposition Labour Party has more than twice the support of the Conservatives. And also a junior cabinet minister was asked earlier today how many more strikes uh, Liz Truss has until she's out. And he said, frankly, not very many. Julia? Yes, but you're right, though. I mean, it's, it's not an empty vessel. It's a, a vessel full, filled with uh, Rishi Sunak's policy, Sunak's policy ideas. Hmm. Scott, great to have you with us. Thank you. you OK, after the break, Microsoft President Brad Smith tackling the big issues facing tech and the world. War, climate, change and protecting democracy. He's up next. Welcome back to First Move and recapping one of our top stories today. Ukraine's President Zelensky says 30 percent of the country's power stations have been destroyed in just eight days. Also this week, we've seen so-called kamikaze drones fly over Kiev and other places. There are two fronts in this war. Russia relying on both traditional weaponry and those armed with keyboards, waging a cyber war targeting infrastructure, carrying out espionage and influencing social media. Microsoft says the cyber defense of Ukraine relies on a coalition of countries, NGOs and companies, and it's committed to awarding off digital threats by investing in technology, data and partnerships. 
For instance, only last week, its threat intelligence centre found a new ransomware campaign called Prestige, targeting transport and logistics companies in Ukraine and in Poland. Brad Smith is vice chairman and president of Microsoft. He's also the author of Tools and Weapons, The Promise and Peril of the Digital Age. Brad, welcome to the show. As always, I shouldn't call it a book anymore. I should call it a crystal ball, quite frankly. Um, You and I have often discussed the two sides to the war that we're seeing in Ukraine, that the physical and also the cyber threats. And, and often that precedes the physical attacks. Just let's explain, if you can, this latest ransomware attack and what makes this distinct or unique? Well, I think what we have also seen in Russia is the use of ransomware groups that typically operate out of Russia. Uh, in recent months, they have been more focused on uh, targets in Ukraine and Poland uh, frankly, countries outside of Western Europe and North America, but you know, focused on, in, at times, uh, refugee groups, NGOs, critical infrastructure. Um, the line between ransomware, an attack that appears to seek money and a destructive attack, is often very narrow. Uh, and a lot of ransomware increasingly in this war is, at times, targeted to destroy critical infrastructure civilian infrastructure, just as these drone attacks yesterday are going after civilian targets. And that's one of the real tragedies of this war. It involves cyber activity and it involves other forms of kinetic warfare as well. I, I know it's early days. Are you confident enough yet to say who's behind these, these latest attacks? Well, we're not confident enough to offer a public attribution, but I don't mm-hmm. think that there's all that many surprises in store. Uh, you know, in recent months, we've really seen the most vigorous cyber activity coming from, frankly, either Russia or Iran. And ironically, what you're looking at right now are drones that were built in Iran and delivered by Russia. And you know, this is something we have to defend against in cyberspace. It d- is also something that the Ukrainians are having to defend against literally every day, and not just against military targets, but against civilians as well. Yeah, it it reminds me, and it goes straight to the heart of the book and what you were talking about, this need for a a sort of broader digital Geneva Convention. Are are we further away from that today, perhaps, than we've we've ever been, whether we're talking about Russia, Iran, the United States, China? Is that something that, in the broader mix of what we're talking about here, would help, but also feels, and you're my eternal optimist, um, sort of relatively impossible at, at this point? I think there's two important points to reflect upon. The first is in the world today, and you captured it earlier, Julia. The defense of a country, especially when it comes to its digital infrastructure, really requires an alliance between governments, NGOs, and tech companies. And that is what we have increasingly built around the world. That is a good thing. And it is protecting Ukraine and other countries every day. Now, I think at the same time, we are taking a step backwards in the world. After World War II, every country came together with the Red Cross and not just made it a moral imperative, but a legal obligation that the military would protect civilians in times of war. And that's been our fundamental plea when we've called for a digital Geneva Convention that in cyberspace, governments need to respect the needs of civilians. We're not seeing that happen on the ground or in the air in Ukraine. We're not seeing it happen in cyberspace. There are many days in many countries 
where we're not seeing it elsewhere. And we just need to bring ourselves back to that fundamental point, I believe. And I will be optimistic and say there is hope if we can focus on doing the right thing. I expect that from you, Brad. So thank you for, for providing it, however, um, however disheartening at times um, the activity suggests. You know, ever since we've been having these conversations about the, the work that, that Microsoft specifically has been doing in Ukraine, and I mentioned the sort of identification and the mitigation of these cyber threats, I've never asked you the question, though it's occurred to me afterwards, about payment for it. And it's something that's sort of, again, come to the surface over the... Uh, let's call it noise with regards to the, the provision of Starlink satellites by Elon Musk and, and by SpaceX. And you don't have to talk specifically about that example, but it does raise a question over who pays, particularly when it comes down to business. And you can never put a price on on human life. And, and I think you said it best with the, the moral imperative that, that you often feel to help, whether it's on something like this or, or on things like climate change. How do you even approach that conversation as a, a board of a business where you're, you're spending money? but you also perhaps do need partnerships, government support. Again, it's a to really, that point. You know, it's a really interesting and important question, Julia. And at times I think we've made our best decisions when we've just moved so quickly mm. that we just felt compelled to identify and do what we regarded as the right thing. Uh, this was true when we decided to pay for people to stay home in COVID, even if they were hourly workers and couldn't work on our campus. And we jumped right in after the war in Ukraine began. You know, Microsoft has now spent more than $300 million supporting the government and people and NGOs of Ukraine. And that's a higher sum than you'll find in many governments. Now, Obviously, the longer this war goes on, the more we're in a recession, the more difficult those kinds of commitments are to maintain, to sustain. We will continue to focus on them. I don't know that we should look to companies to profit from a war, but I don't know that we should look to businesses to incur losses either. And so the conversation that has begun maybe hasn't been the most artful one, but it is perhaps a necessary one as the world thinks about what it takes to sustain and defend Ukraine for what could be years and not just months. Um, agree completely and diplomatically put. Perhaps not done in the most artful way, but it's an important conversation to have. Um, you raised something else which I want to move to now, which is we are a month out from COP27 and we're watching countries all over the world make short-term Necessary, let's say it, uh, energy security decisions, perhaps, though, at the cost of all our plans, necessary plans for, for hitting climate targets. And, Brat, I know you have personal plans at Microsoft and we, we often talk about them. Um, but, but you are, I think, pretty unique in your disclosure, in your adherence, in your discussion of those targets. Again, I guess I'm looking for the optimist, but, but one month out from COP27, what, what are you thinking? And... Um, are the alarm calls louder than perhaps they were even a year ago? I am optimistic, mm -hmm. uh, even though the times would not seem to call for it. Let's face it, it could be a hard winter in Europe. This is a time of year and a time in this decade when people, especially across Europe, quite naturally and reasonably, will be more focused on getting heat and electricity into their homes. They'll be more worried about their electricity bills. But this is why I'm an optimist. All of these difficult steps 
are going to accelerate even more the energy transition that is just indispensable to a climate-friendly future. So every step that is going to make 2022 feel more difficult is going to move us faster to where we need to be in 2030 with more wind power, more solar power, frankly, more use of data and AI to innovate our way out of this climate mess. And so it will feel like we're going backwards in the short term, but I think at the end of this decade, we will look back and we will say we move faster because of this difficult period of time. And technology is a crucial aspect of that. And I know you spend a lot of time talking about how technology can facilitate that transition. I mean, I, I lose track of the number of partnerships you sign, but one that caught my attention, um, Terra Praxis, which is um, a strategic collaboration to try and decarbonize coal. And I believe the hope is to take a fleet of 2,400 coal plants and get them to then run on clean energy. So I love this idea of investing in renewables, but also transitioning some of the dirtier forms of um, electricity production that we have and making them cleaner. Um, but how do you do that without China on board? Or are they on board? I believe that there will come a time when we increasingly will get every country on board. And when you look at a coal plant, a coal-fired electricity plant, there's two ways to look at it. One way is to say this is a plant that needs to close so it stops pumping carbon into the air. The other way to look at it is the way that Terra Praxis, this wonderful NGO, and Microsoft and MIT are looking at it and saying this is a coal plant that can be converted to a new generation of nuclear power, small modular reactors. It's already connected to the grid. It has a trained workforce, typically 1,200 people in a rural community that know how to run a power plant. It's got water cooling capacity. You can cut the cost of constructing a new nuclear plant by a third by converting these plants. And we can use the power of the cloud computing, AI, data to accelerate all of that. Okay, I'm on board. I like that idea. <laughs> You're giving me the level of enthusiasm that's required. Um, final question on this, and it is tied. As you said, it's difficult to make important moral climate-related and beyond decisions when economies are slowing and recession risks and fears are, are genuinely present. We've had another recession warning today from rating agency Fitch for, for the United States. Brad, what's your sense from the board well, at Microsoft? How concerned are you about recession risk and what does it mean? I, I think the world's a diverse place. I was in Europe last week and obviously it's very challenging there. You know, in, in the U.S., you do see this weakening across the economy, especially in consumer spending. On the other hand, you go to a place like India, where I was a month ago, and people are very bullish about what they see. So we're not going to see uniformity around the world. We clearly are encountering economic headwinds. It is a time, as we look at it, that where we're all going to have to find new ways to do more with less. You know, it is a time to harness the power of data and use technology to enhance productivity in a way that will save money. And so this is the difference, again, between short-term and long-term. I think it's hard to be a short-term optimist about the next you know, quarter or even year, but we do have the capacity as we pull through this to lay the foundation for what then can be the next round of sustained economic growth if we do this wisely. Yeah, such a great point. Think of the medium term and the longer term while you are trying to deal with the, uh, the shorter. Uh, Brad, it's always a pleasure. Thank you. Brad Smith, Thank you. Microsoft president there. We'll speak to you soon, sir. Thank you. We're back after this.
And welcome back to First Move. French President Emmanuel Macron under increasing pressure to ease the country's cost of living crisis that has triggered large-scale worker protests across the country. Transit workers walking off the job today causing widespread commuter frustration. Eurostar services were affected too. All this, of course, on top of the strikes at oil refineries that have led to serious gasoline shortages across the nation. And Melissa Bell joins us now from Paris. Melissa, I can see people on the streets behind you. Just talk to us about what's going on there. Well, it had been a long time, Julia, since we'd seen this many protesters out on the streets of Paris. As you said, it comes in the context of not just those petrol strikes, but the strike called today uh, by the rail unions. As you can see here at the front of this very considerable parade that we've just walked the length of, uh, that is very well attended. The police have just stopped the protesters uh, to try and keep things calm. But there are an impressive number of people out here. The strike, not as crippling as the unions would have hoped. It is only in the worst hit parts of France, according to the transport minister, one in two trains that is affected. Uh, but this, of course, uh, much more uh, worrying, this anger. And again, Julie, it had been a long time since we'd heard it expressed on the streets of Paris. You'll remember the yellow vest protests uh, had been the most recent than COVID. Uh, and now the protests and the strikes uh, back, driven really by high inflation and the cost of living, with the transport and some public sector workers now demanding higher wages uh, to be able to deal with that, Julia. Melissa, how do they solve this? What's the government doing? I mean, I know they've been in talks, but what can they do? It's, it's not just France. All nations are suffering with this. Well, the trouble they have is that what they've tried to do so far, and it is just one of the main unions that is carrying on with the strike, a settlement had been found with many of the other workers, 7% rise, not the 10% that the trade unions had asked for. So one union holding out. The trouble for the government, Julia, is that they've used the legal powers they have to force some people back to work. And that's really part of the anger that we're hearing here today. A lot of workers saying that their right to protest is not being respected. It comes in a very difficult political climate for Emmanuel Macron. You'll remember who ran, won in May with a very divided France and a lot of voting on the extremes of the French political spectrum, Julia. It's an ongoing huge challenge. Um, Melissa, stay safe there, please. And um, yeah, I can see you keeping track of what's going on around you. Take care, please. Melissa Bell there in Paris. Okay, that's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. You can search for at CNN. I'll be back in a few moments with Connect the World. Stay with CNN. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.